In hindsight, if they had done more with the Rodney Dangerfield inspiration, it could have been far worse. For instance, <clears throat> when I was such an ugly kid, when I played in the sandbox, the cat kept covering me up. No respect. No respect at all. I drank too much. The last time I gave a urine sample, it had an olive in it. I was so depressed, I decided to jump from the 10th floor. I said to a priest, he said, on your mark. Oh, what if they switch that around, though? You know, it's like, hey, I'm a victim of circumstance. <laughs> woo, 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 woo. <laughs> there are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny and James can a sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, once again, I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome once again to the Pemmy and James kinda sorta hopefully funny cartoon podcast. And it's Summer Blockbuster Month! Woo! All this month we are looking at movies inspired by some of the most popular feature films to be, well, blockbuster hits! We're going to open with a cartoon inspired by the original summer blockbuster, Jaws. Gotta have my pops. <laughs> So, when you're an animation firm from, oh, the 1960s through to, say, the early 2000s, one of the surest ways to get the networks to pick up your idea is to come up with something that cashes in on the cultural zeitgeist of the moment. For instance, once kung fu movies with Bruce Lee became popular B-movie attractions in the States, there was Hanna-Barbera with Hong Kong Fooey. Number one super guy. You say the TV series Emergency is blasting up the ratings chart for NBC? Enter Filmation with Emergency Plus Four, adding some kids and animal sidekicks to the mix. I've never actually seen that show. I know of it, but I've never actually seen it. I hope it's better than Lassie. Yeah. And on and on it goes. From animated adaptations of popular shows and movies to shows with suspiciously similar themes to other generally more successful properties. But what do you do when the big thing in the movies is a suspense film about a massive shark killing people in a summer tourist spot? That's far from kid vid fare. So you go to what you know works and add a few new layers to it to match the big hits of the day. And Hanna-Barbera gives us Jabberjaw. A 1976 production for ABC that followed in the wake of the original Shark Week. Well, okay, shark season. That was the aforementioned Jaws. One of two shows to do this might be worth mentioning. but Yeah, the other being to Patty Freeling's Mr. Jaw. Which kind of feels a little more accurate to a cartoon interpretation of Jaws, honestly. But that's beside the point. Yeah. That's for another day. Yeah, for a long while from now. Jabberjaw was another brainchild of Scooby-Doo co-creators Joe Ruby and Ken Spears who had returned to the Hanna-Barbera fold for this and a couple other shows before finally starting their own company. It's also worth mentioning that unlike a lot of shows they worked on previously for Hanna-Barbera, this one actually gives them creator credit in the uh, credits. Nice, yes. So Hanna-Barbera used this eponymous shark in their latest spin on the Scooby-slash-Josie formula. 
hewing towards the Josie and the Pussycats side of it more closely than even Speed Buggy ever did. Yeah, what's weird, though, is uh, there's early design... I, I don't know if you can still find them, but Cartoon Network in their early days used to have a website where you could see early uh, art for, like, you could see all the model sheets and early art for different shows. And Jabberjaw's early, early designs showed that it wasn't always going to be like this. The early stuff had him kind of, believe it or not, weirdly looking similar to uh, the Mr. Jaws character from the Patty Freeling with like a fish sidekick. And it looked like, and he lived in an aquarium and it was like something like Yogi Bear-esque, like they're going for the funny animal routine. So more squidly diddly then. Yeah. And at some point they decided, no, that's old hat. Let's, let's do the, let's do the Josie formula. But Hanna-Barbera didn't stop there with pulling from the culture at large. When it came to characterizing their shark, they gave him the voice and mannerisms of the late Curly Howard from the Three Stooges. And as a cherry on top, gave him Rodney Dangerfield's catchphrase, I don't get no respect. What a weird combination. (laughs) Frank Welker is given the task of bringing this oddball creation to life. And he does a darn good Curly. Yeah, Frank does a really good Curly. I mean, it's not the first time he's done that. I think he also played Curly in the, uh, well, I think this came, I don't know if this came. This came first, and we will be getting to that. All right. Jabby is also the drummer for a band, the Neptunes, whose membership also includes four human teens. Guitarist Biff, keyboardist Bubbles, percussionist Shelly, and bassist Clamhead. Wait, does... Does a tambourine count as percussionist? It's a percussion instrument. I guess, I guess that works. And, come on, do, you, do we really want to risk her ire by calling her something lesser? Hey, you know, that's, that's fair. <laughs> this quintet travels the underwater kingdoms and civilizations of the year 2076, and inevitably get intertwined with the machinations of assorted supervillains. Hijinks ensue... The band eventually triumphs each time, and, well, we've been here a few times already this year with this formula, so no need to really rehash what we've gone over when covering Josie and Speed Buggy. 2076? So that's like, what, 53 years from now? Roughly. We we might be alive to see the world go underwater. <laughs> yeah, just not the way we hope. <laughs> anyway... The Neptunes are all performed by fairly well-traveled voice actors. Biff Stark's voice is courtesy of Tommy Cook, who was the first voice actor to perform as Wally West, a.k.a. Kid Flash, and eventually The Flash, for Filmation's Teen Titans cartoon. Jumping jellyfish! Oh, God. Yeah. Tommy was an established character actor in film and radio, and is still active today if his Wikipedia bio was correct. I do feel like Biff had potential to be a good character because I do like the fact that he's both, rather than just being generic leader, he's also the guy that kind of gets them into some of these jams, trying to do either some sort of, you know, uh, publicity stunt or accidentally losing their tickets or something like that. It gave him potential. Yeah, they just never quite got there with him. I swear to God, someone really needed to tell Joe Ruby and Conspirators that jumping jellyfish was not a phrase that was going to catch on, because I swear he says it like five times in every episode. 
Up next, Shelly Seastruck's ill-tempered jabs at Jabberjaw are provided by Patricia Paris in her first-ever television role, though she would go on to do multiple parts for all kinds of media, including being a secondary performer for characters like Minnie Mouse and Princess Leia on read-along storybook-slash-record sets, and a secondary performer for Velma Dinkley and the teenage Pebbles Flintstone, in educational film strips Hanna-Barbera made for use in in public schools. Are we going to have to talk about those one of these days? Hmm. Possibly. I'm glad I downloaded that, that upload of the, the Scooby-Doo one before it got removed from YouTube because that, that's, that, that one's an experience. <laughs> the Joyous Bubbles Bloaton is performed by Julie McWhorter whose credits also include Genie, you know, the spinoff from Barbara Eden's I Dream of Genie, Baby Smurf, and Strawberry Shortcake supporting character Huckleberry Pie. Should I tell my opinions of those two characters, or should we wait until after the episodes? Um, in a moment. Because we do have one last voice actor to go over, and he's arguably the second most famous after Frank in this show. Our shaggy clone for this series, Cleveland Clamhead Rogers is voiced by Barry Gordon, who as a child actor portrayed a young Jack Benny, and for voice acting he'd go on to be Junior Wentworth on The Snorks, but he would achieve his greatest fame as Donatello and Bebop in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoons. And uh, a role he actually reprised in the, what was it, one of the, uh, the, the first Nickelodeon um, Ninja Turtle cartoon, because mm-hmm. it did a crossover with the 80s version of the Turtles, and they got all the voice actors for it. Yep, and he would also reprise it for the recent uh, Shredder's Revenge video game. Yeah, which is actually really good. Also, with a last name like Rogers, is Clamhead a distant relative of Norville? Uh, I'd say there's definitely potential if that one screenshot I took says anything. Zoinks indeed, folks. Zoinks indeed. It's like from the side or, you know, the three-fourths, like, angle that they usually show the characters at, he does, he only vaguely looks like Shaggy, because he kind of looks like a weird cross between Shaggy and Jughead Jones. I was going to say Shaggy and George Jetson. I can see that, too. But when you show, show him full face front, he just looks like Shaggy. <laughs> he just Basically. Like Shaggy. Yeah, that's our cast, and... Oh. Nothing against the voice actors, but uh, Josie and the Pussycats, these guys ain't. No, and that that's not even getting into the fact that Clamhead also has his own set of catchphrases. He's got his weird Abba 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 stutter, which I don't mind that. That's I don't mind that, but the wowie wow 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 thing got old. Yes, yes it did. There was no way this was going to be the next Jinkies. No, or, or Zoinks or Jeepers. Or even um, Zowie Wowie. Yeah, or even, uh, let's split up, gang. <laughs> okay, that's pushing it. <laughs> I will give credit that the Abba 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 thing doesn't bother me because that feels more less like a catchphrase and more like they're giving him like a personality trait, kind of like a stutter. And I'm actually okay with giving a character a stutter or something like that because that actually gives them kind of a relatable trait in a way. Since people actually have that. Yeah, so long as they're not being mocked for it. Which I don't feel like it is here. No, no. 
<laughs> Meanwhile, Porky's like, I didn't mean anything. Sorry. Political correctness stinks. Sorry, that leads into still one of my favorite scenes from that movie. Like, you made me look like a space cadet. And the Josie and the Pussycats comparison is actually purposeful. Oh, yeah, because two of the characters just straight up feel like less good versions of two of the characters from Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah, Bubbles is basically an amped-up melody, while Shelly is a watered-down, pun half-intended, Alexandra. Yeah, it's... Because I actually like Alexandra, despite the fact that she's... Okay, I can't say the word that I'd normally say to describe her because... Uh, she's self-sabotaging. Yeah, she she's a jerk. She's, she's just a straight-up jerk. But I don't know, for some weird reason, I at least understand why she's a jerk, I guess. Because... Jealousy. You know, she's, yeah, jealousy. And also, she's rich and thinks she's better than everybody. Not something I agree with, but I understand it as a motive. And weirdly, I like Alexandra, despite the fact that she's a jerk and she's meant to be a jerk. I don't feel that with Shelly. Shelly, I just feel like she's just not a fun person to be around. I don't know why she's part. I don't know why they want her on the band. I mean, other than I guess she's supposed to be pretty. Because, yeah, though I I will at least give Shelly credit. I, I would be pissed off if a giant shark kept trying to kiss me, too. So, yeah, consent, man, consent. Not to mention safety. Yeah, but I mean, even if even if you do put that aside, she's still like just really insulting to the rest of the band members for absolutely no reason. Ninety percent of the time, essentially. Well, but uh, let's get on ooh. with the show. Oh, I I I, I want to mention mention something about bubbles before we do that. Go ahead, boy, howdy. Um, she makes Melody look like a freaking genius. It's like. Melody's a ditz, but I can see her functioning in real life. I could not fathom Bubbles just having a successful real life. <laughs> I, I think there's a trope on TV trope that says uh, too dumb to, too, should be too dumb to live or something like that. That's the one, yeah. And yeah, yeah, I think she qualifies. Because, <laughs> jeez. <laughs> And we will see some of that in the second episode we cover. But first up, let's get right into it with There's No Place Like Outer Space. There doesn't seem to be an individual writer credit for this episode, or any of them for that matter. Yeah, Hanna-Barbera really... Uh, I don't think a lot of cartoons really did that until, like, like I think in the 80s. Yeah. Maybe the, some of the late 90s. Uh, late, some, maybe some of the late 70s, but... That definitely seemed to be a lot more common in the nine the eighties, and even then there were shows that wouldn't do it. So, so deep in the blue depths of outer space, <laughs> this is a common Hanna Barbera quirk of the sixties and seventies to depict space as varying shades of blue rather than pitch black. It probably works to put stuff to put stuff over the black landscape better granted that didn't stop space ghosts but oh one other thing i was i, I want to mention um i noticed that the 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 intro is different on the two episodes we watched yeah 
one opens with what's probably the more familiar intro with Jabberjaw introducing himself before the, the, the lyrics of the song proper and the other just doesn't. Yeah, and there's like other little quirks like uh, Frank says more sings more lines in one of them than the other. Some of them, one of them has like the Neptunes actually singing a lot of the lines. And one of them also has this scene where like uh, we call on this big ham and it's sang by the Neptunes and and it even shows them kind of like a really kind of awkward brief moment of them screaming and then the the more common one just Instead, has Frank sing when they need my help. I'll, they call this Big Ham, and it just doesn't have that clip. And I don't know; it's just weird. <laughs> Guess they uh, decided to change things in the intro a couple of times before settling on it. So we're up in space for this episode, and not underwater for a reason. And that reason is a spaceship filled with mantis-like beings, which is also the reason we picked this episode because this character design is recycled from the space ghost villain Zorak. Who would become even more popular in the late 90s with uh, Space Ghost Coast to Coast. Right. Now, speaking of that intro, there's a reddish, giant, semi-redesigned version of this character in that opening sequence. But for the purposes of the episode, this is pure Alex Toth design, baby. That's funny you mentioned that because I actually streamed this episode in one of my art streams. And friend of mine, uh, let's see, hopefully I'll, I'll say his name wrong. Apologies if I don't. Dan uh, Variano saw the intro and said, oh, hi, not Zorak. And I'm just like, ha, just wait. And then like, as soon as like Zorak, the episode starts, he's like, oh, there he is. <laughs> but yeah, I, I wonder if this was, I, I know it's easy to just say this was a cost cutting measure, but. I also kind of wonder if it was like someone working on this show just really liked the Zorak design and wanted to use it again. Possibly. It is a pretty good design. It's pretty memorable from Space Ghost. Yeah. I mean, that's probably why they use it in Space Ghost Coast to Coast. So the first one of these Manti, Mantis, Mantises, whichever plural you want to use, speaks up and sounds like... uh, Frank Welker's voice for Scooter from the GoBots. Pretty much. And he informs Commander Dormax that they've arrived at Earth. And the diminutive, insectoid-looking but not especially mantis-like Dormax proclaims the invasion plans are right on schedule. Diving underwater and approaching the city of Hydrostan, which is kind of an Arabic vibe to it, the invaders already have a man on the inside, to enact the first phase of their, no doubt, diabolical plan. I wonder if this guy was called Dormax because he used to let people walk all over him. Hmm. Meanwhile, a sea bus is bringing the Neptunes into Hydrostan, where Biff is already getting audio reports of UFOs being spotted around the city, and he's quickly brainstorming an idea for a publicity stunt since their gig in town is at a UFO convention. How convenient. He also manages to turn his head around 180 degrees. I guess he's part owl. So his plan is to dress as Martians and stage a phony invasion. And that's not even getting into the awkward line exchange between Jabberjaw and uh, Clamhead in this scene. Jabber's a bit big for the uh, ship they're traveling in and says, by the end of this, I'm going to have a flat head. And, and then it shows that he's in Clamhead's lap who says, and I'll have a flat lap. 
So Shelley, frankly, has the sense to call this publicity stunt positively dumb. Jabberjaw loves the idea, so I guess she's outvoted. I guess so. I mean, I wouldn't argue with a great white shark, even if it's Jabberjaw. (laughs) Once parked at the convention, they set to work, and Jabberjaw tries an antenna-adorned bubble helmet for a disguise. Shelley quite correctly states he looks more like a lighthouse. I I don't see it, but okay, Shelley. I I will at least give him credit for making a functioning spaceship in a short amount of time. Yeah, future technology, I suppose. To be quite honest, Shelley probably also got outvoted by the other two members because let's let let's be honest, Clamhead and Bubbles would a hundred percent go for this. With their uh, little UFO made, they plan to launch their stunt at eight o'clock with Clamhead and Jabber flying the craft. And by sheer coincidence, that's when the invaders are going to send a scout ship over the fairgrounds to acquire an Earth identification device to let them into Hydrastan. However, by some weird coincidence, said device accidentally gets sent to Clamhead and Jabberjaw for some reason. Need to work on those coordinates. Yeah. The collaborator quickly tells his associates of the mistake and to capture the other craft. Once they spot the uh, UFO, Jabber says he'll give them a left, then a right. But a high speed near miss changes his mind. Meanwhile... The rest of the band are getting either impatient or worried. And Biff and Bubbles each point to a different craft and quickly realize their friends are being pursued by the real alien deals. There's more near misses, more not especially witty verbal gags, and the head mantis alien decides they're too squirrely to catch and breaks the pursuit. Actually, you know, I got one problem. Multiple times they call this ship a flying saucer. It's underwater. It's no longer flying. (laughs) I mean, I'm not wrong. Yeah. So these unlikely heroes barely land safely, and Biff introduces the band. Everything seems to be swell, until Jabber removes his helmet, and the crowd panics at the presence of a shark. Yeah, maybe maybe you shouldn't have brought the let the shark be one of the maybe you shouldn't have let the shark be one of the aliens. Or maybe Jabber should have just kept that really tight helmet on. So the convention's proprietor has them ejected, and Biff thinks that exposing the actual alien threat will get them back in the good graces of the show. (gasps) Now wait just a minute! That wasn't the problem in the first place! The crowd was scared of Jabberjaw and had no idea about the real aliens! Well, to the defense... The guy did also complain about them causing a mess in the fairgrounds from the ship. Oh, fair. Hate, hate to defend it, but that... that, Yeah. So Still, the whole thing about that Earth identification device does need investigating. So they are right to go to the police. Just not necessarily the reasons they really ought to be. Yeah. Also, Jabber lands on Shelly. No wonder she's peed off this whole episode. At the station, the chief is inclined to actually listen and take it seriously, but needs more proof to build the case. Smartest person in the show so far. I don't know, I'd figure a device like that would have been enough proof, honestly. The Neptunes say Jabberjaw will track the aliens down, and Jabber does another audition for the part of Scrappy-Doo. I'll give him a left, and a right, and a left. 
The chief has a sergeant escort them out and see about a pet license for Jabberjaw. And I quickly realize what's actually happening the second I see the chief still looking at the Earth identification device. At least they're not freaking out about the shark. Yeah. But yeah, the chief is actually the alien contact. And it is, in fact, a mantis person himself. Yep. Another Zorak. My statement of him being the smartest person on the show so far doesn't just stand. It's been reinforced. Also, he's one word away from calling the Neptunes meddling kids. If he said it, I'd have Hanna-Barbera bingo. <laughs> nah, just calls them meddlers. Meddling earthlings. Oh, I call them meddlers or later. Yeah. So instead of Hanna-Barbera bingo, I just have Hanna-Barbera legal. <laughs> so Biff says the only way to track down the spacecraft is to get back into the fair and use the fair's tech to figure out where it went. Um, okay. I mean, all right. I, I guess I've heard less sensible things. Shelly has a plan to get in. Disguise the group as a custodial robot, which actually works too well. To the point to where uh, they literally get garbage thrown into them. Cue no respect line. Yep. And it turns out the Ferris computer exhibit does indeed have a recording of the sighting with the direction the unidentified floating object was headed in. More boastful blabber from Jabber follows, and yes... They find the spacecraft in the next segment. Maybe now business can pick back up since Shelley's next plan is to just waltz right in. And surprisingly, that also works. Yeah, in the middle of the aliens' attack plan meeting, yes, indeedy, the Neptunes just walk in. They just arrived in the alien craft. No alarms going off, no sneaking past guards, nothing of the sort. The guards were on lunch break. What a weirdly paced cartoon. Yeah. I do want to mention uh, both those times when they were getting the uh, records from the fairgrounds, they repeated an animation of Biff twice during, like, before and at the end of that scene, where literally they just slide him across the screen rather than do the bounce. And they repeat that same thing twice. Yeah. I don't know why that's one of those animation goofs that always makes me laugh because it looks so ridiculous. Shelley claims they're from the planet Zarko, aliens themselves, in other words, and they have first claimed to Earth. But Commander Dormax believes, based on her uniform, that she's a mere drone and isn't fit to speak for them. Rude. A little bit. Jabberjaw gives it a try next, offering to split up the Earth, saying they'll take the United States and the Manti... Mantises, whatever, can have Siberia. And uh, Clamhead claims Japan. I didn't know. I guess Clamhead's an anime fan. Either that or he just wants to get in on the car market. Ooh. And the commander now wants proof of their space alien bona fides. With a quick huddle, they try to pick a trick to deceive him. And all Clamhead has is bubblegum. Just what Jabber needs to show off how they trap their enemies. This is some... Weird. This gum has some weird physics. I'm gonna say that. Yeah, we assume he's. They're gonna go for that whole in case the aliens in a bubble bit, but Jabber floats up with said bubble. It bursts, and the gum covers a trio of mantis aliens. 
Um, okay then. And none of it sticks to the ceiling at all. Uh, futuristic gum? Eh, maybe. The commander just traps Jabber with an energy net in response and orders the band captured. And Q, run away! Yep. Hiding in a teleporter room, they spot a lone alien operator and decide he's the proof they need to bring back to the authorities. It's time for another of Shelley's plans. As they convince the operator, he's going to be the next spy and have to make him up to fit in. And they just wheel in a massive cosmetics device. Was that in the teleport room all along? I, I guess so. <laughs> I know, I know. It's a don't think of too hard about it moment. But this episode is already stretching my patience. They, they were just like, hey, you know, it's here. It's so, so cute cross-dressing an alien. Or making him up anyways. Yeah, we get what became in hindsight one of the more infamous images in this series' history. Zorak, quote-unquote. In drag. Yep. I wonder if Space Ghost ever showed him these images on Space Ghost Coast to Coast. So the band turns the alien into the police station, where the chief says he's going to give them more proof, and shuts off his disguise. Boom. Shades of one of our favorite Speed Buggy episodes right there. <laughs> it just show. Oh, I'm the villain. Ha <laughs> ha! Trapping the escaping Neptunes in a cage, Shelly says it can't hold them, and Jabberjaw does, in fact, bend the bars. So, hey, why not shoot them off to space instead? Shelly I mean, growls that Jabberjaw really did it this time, even if she, frankly, started it. Well, she can't take the blame. I mean, yeah. it's Shelly. She, she's got Alexandra Complex there. This is one of the worst written female characters I've encountered in a cartoon. I will at least give him credit. Well, he probably shouldn't have revealed his identity at that point. I can at least understand why he did more so than, again, the, the Mr. Tabbert from, like, freaking Speed Buggy. <laughs> it felt like he was just doing it to be a jerk to the kids. <laughs> the Neptunes are launched into space. The aliens resume their plotting. Jabber bites through the cage on the rocket. And it all seems routine. Until Biff discovers the controls are locked. So what's the plan? We're going to stick Jabberjaw's tail outside of this rocket to... Propel it? Steer it? Something like that? I know Jabberjaw is a character who works on more heavy-tuned logic than the others. But even this is a bit much! Yeah, I don't understand how that would remotely work, but it seemingly does until Jabber starts slipping out of the rocket. Not to mention, isn't he poking out of the jet engine? I know! And then the Neptunes try and pull him in, and now they're outside too? Just in space. No problems there! Now, admittedly, it's a little ambiguous how far into space they got, but if they weren't in space, then that means the backgrounds went from night to day. Which, for Hanna-Barbera in the 70s, that's a valid possibility. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just hoping it was nighttime and 
they they weren't actually in space because otherwise I got so many questions, and that's not even getting into re-entering Earth's atmosphere. To be sure, even She-Ra did a better job of getting that right. <laughs> Sorry, all I can think of when you mentioned that was just like the fact that literally her rear was on fire. <laughs> Bro. In that scene, it's like, oh, this shield will cool it off. Or, this cloud cooled it off. I was like, what? <laughs> that is my favorite episode of Shira, though. So, For the sake of advancing the plot, the gang lands on the main ship right as the invasion is being launched. What a quinky dink. Bubbles at least has a cute line about hitching a ride into town on one of the rockets. I'll, I'll give this some credit. Yeah. Jabber is too wrapped up in his bluster to follow them into the hatch. And next, we get the chase sequence set to a song that makes anything from the Josie and the Pussycats cartoon sound like a track off of Abbey Road. It's bad. It's pretty bad. Long story short, the Neptunes get trapped, and the very stop and start invasion starts once more. Short story long, anything by Charles Dickens. <laughs> I, I will at least give uh, credit for clever uh, save on Jabberjaw's part in the fact that he used a sawfish to get them out of a locked cell. However, at the same token, that ship's not being flooded, which raises more questions. Yeah, th- this this is Jabberjaw, not SpongeBob SquarePants. But Jabber is then slingshot into one of the ships, which. When sent back to the mothership, traps said mothership with one of their energy nets because reasons. Yeah, it, they even had him say, "Don't use the force net," and then he uses the force net, which then somehow causes the ship to sink. Ugh. So the Neptunes do get to perform at the convention, and Jabber puts a fishbowl on for a helmet. With fish, Shelley claims that's our chapper. This was not a particularly good cartoon, and that's not even getting in the fact that goof they made after the ship gets captured in its own net for some reason. Like you see the Neptunes going, Jabber did it. Good job, Jabber, and Jabber's right behind them, and then it flips flips to the scene where Jabber's away from them, and you know, doing the whole like, you know, the pose celebration posing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really hoping our next episode gives us more to dive into. And we will dive in right after this break. Shark! Everyone out of the water! It's a shark! Oh, it's just Jabberjaw! He won't eat you. He's just taking a break. That's a Cartoon Network promise. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, Universal had just wrapped up the wildly successful Back to the Future film series. But the adventures continued on the small screen in 1992 on CBS. Marty McFly and Doc Brown are joined by the latter's kids, Jules and Vern. Get it? In time-traveling road trips where there's a tannin in every place they turn. All this and Bill Nye in two weeks. The Cartoon Network returns to Jabberjaw. Careful, no fear. So, what... Could it possibly improve a show about an anthropomorphic shark? More anthropomorphic sharks. This episode is number seven in the in the production order, The Great White Shark Switch. 
and our villain du jour is Commander Shark and his band of undersea pirates. He himself is not actually a shark. He's just a human with a shark motif. And is John Stevenson doing his Boris Karloff imitation? Yep, which I believe you told me he used in the Josie and the Pussycats episode with Captain Nemo. Yes, and he's done it somewhere else that was familiar, but I can't remember right off the top. But yeah, he does it for Nemo. Yeah, Commander Shark is looking to capture an ambassador and eventually all the other national leaders to rule the underseas world. Wow, this guy's not wasting any time. We're just 10 seconds in after the show's theme song, and he's just given us the motive rant. I mean, hey, get right to it, I guess. Yep. Also, this ambassador sounds kind of familiar. Yeah, I, I can't place it, but he's on a shuttle going back to Aquitania, talking to uh, someone. Boy, this show is really going out of their way to not give either of these people names. Are you, are you really not able to place why the ambassador sounds familiar? I'm not. It, it's Barry Gordon. It's Oh. It's just Clamhead's voice actor. Okay. It's it's like hits his normal voice, except he's giving kind of a I I don't want to say uppity, but upper class kind of sound to him. So they call for a waitress, and oh, thank God, it's Bubbles. <laughs> when she's the better of the two, that's kind of sad. <laughs> what do you recommend for dinner tonight? Oh, I know a wonderful restaurant, uh, but we'd never get there in time. That's a good joke. It's a good joke. Terrible waitress, though. <laughs> yeah. So the ambassador orders watercress salad, a turtle soup, and a, and a filet of fish. And, and guy number two, which is what we have to call him because, again, no name, he wants the same order as the ambassador. So Bubbles will just put it between them so they can share. Again, that's at least funny. It is. Still a bad waitress, though. <laughs> yeah. Also... To be honest, that's a lot. Seems like a lot of food, too. It is. It turns out the Neptunes lost their tickets to Aquitania, so they have to work their way in the kitchen. And every step of the order is done by robotic arms controlled by keyboard commands. A la the Jetsons. Shelly complains about getting dishpan hands from doing dishes, putting her solidly in the George Jetson labor field, because that's all automated by the push of a button, too. Yeah, my my least favorite gag from the Jetsons. Let's complain about doing absolutely nothing. Or little to nothing. (laughs) Jabber's complaint seems to be similar with mopping the floor, until it's revealed he's the mop. Which doesn't even make any sense. Why would you, you know... It doesn't, but at the very least, it's a fun rule of three gag, which subverts the expectation following the meal making and the dishwashing. Fair enough. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. It was at least kind of cool to see Biff get a little snotty back with Shelly, though. Commander Shark gets in range and launches an attack. Tiger Sharks with nets. We know they're Tiger Sharks because they're accompanied by Tiger Roars. Oh, man. I didn't think we were going to get to this show until much later. I know. We haven't even done... We haven't even done Thundercats yet. (laughs) Ha ha. Probably five people got that joke. Yeah. But they're the right five people. They're <laughs> our kind of people. 
to those people, we salute you. You can't see it, but I assure you we did. So these nets have anchor uh, things, which are deployed once the sharks catch the ship in them. Whatever these futuristic nets are made of, Freddie Jones must be salivating at the thought. Yeah, I know. A net that could stop a whole freaking spaceship? Yeah, Mystery Incorporated Freddie Jones is going nuts right now. Regardless, Jabberjaw figures, since they're sharks, they'll listen to him. But these sharks are on the absolute wrong side of the anthropomorphic scale. Which is to say, they're not anthropomorphic. Which just kind of makes Jabber seem even weirder in hindsight. Yeah. And they, these sharks just chase him back into the shuttle. No respect. Not even from a fellow shark. The commander boards the ship and commands the ambassador be captured. And the latter runs off to the kitchen where the Neptunes hide him in a large cabinet. It looks more like a locker. Yeah, but they call it a cabinet. It, it, yeah, it, it, it does look more like a locker. So Biff tells everyone to act natural and they do exactly what you're probably expecting when someone tells a comedic set of characters to act natural. Yeah. Cue whistling and looking up and (laughs) totally looking suspicious. Yep. When Commander Shark asks about the ambassador, Bubbles gives a perfect description, then claims to have never seen him before. Pretty standard gag. Yeah. But again, by this show's standards, she's turning into the MVP. Yeah. (laughs) Up until later in this episode, but we'll get to that. Yeah. So the pirates search the galley, and that gets the scared curly noise from the entire band. Yeah, yeah. And they, quote, inconspicuously, unquote, start cleaning the cabinet. Because, yeah, that's that's the... These guys aren't good at being unsuspicious. No. Even by a cartoon level. I, I think Shaggy and Scooby could do a better job of hiding this ambassador than this entire team. And probably have. I mean, there's enough Scooby-Doo cartoons. Their success rate has to at least be a, <laughs> a 0.5 average. So Sharky isn't fooled. And when the Neptunes insist nothing can move them, he deploys a telekinesis device or some such. They move. Yep. Cool device that they never use again in the entire episode. I know! Heck, that could have been a villain's whole gimmick. Yep. Also made Jabberjaw's eyes green whenever he accidentally it accidentally gets shoved into his mouth. Hmm. Maybe that's why it never got used again. It needed to be disinfected. <laughs> there you go. So with the ambassador captured, the Neptunes at least figure they did their best and nobody can blame them. The timing on this is so slow, you can't call it a Gilligan cut. Yep. Actually, no, no. A Gilligan cut is when they say they'll never do it and then they're doing it. Yeah. This is the inverse. But still doesn't do good because we get a whole scroll of them into the into the new city and immediately pulled out by ejector robots saying that uh, being accused of helping Commander Shark kidnap the ambassador for some reason. Yeah. And this person the robots are reporting to is also unnamed. He's just called Your Honor. We don't even get a title for this guy. He looks like he got dressed by the guy from Jungle Hunt. Jabber demonstrates how they tried to help the ambassador on this unnamed honor person and does so very physically. And for some reason, Frank's voice sounds higher pitched than it should. 
Yeah, it sounds like they were trying to do a fast, like they were trying to fast forward his voice or something. Yeah. As a gag, but it, it doesn't work. No. No. This leads to the authority figure accusing them of trying to escape. Yeah, trying to lock him up and escape when he was just trying to show him what they did. Yeah. Which, then Shelly's like, oh yeah? Well, if you give us 24 hours, we'll give you proof that we didn't do this. And he complies? Well, if they don't, his honor will hunt them down and see to it they never play another note. Guess who I'm rooting for? <laughs> I don't get this logic, though. It's like... I mean, can you imagine any actual, like, government, like, go, look, I know you think I did these drugs, but if you give me 24 hours, I'll give you proof I didn't do it. And they'll be like, all right. Meanwhile, the ambassador says Commander Shark will need more sharks than the Seven Seas even has to capture every world leader. But apparently, the commander thought of that. And he's going to turn people into sharks because that will make smarter sharks. You have technology that can turn people into sharks. You can cure cancer with that. I don't want to cure cancer. I want to turn people into sharks. <laughs> you knew we had to go there, folks. <laughs> I, I do have to say, well, I'll, I'll get into like the problem with this device of his later. We get to witness that. <laughs> but via this legion of sharks who can talk, breathe air, and think like humans, the commander believes he'll be unstoppable. It's not the worst plan I've heard. No, no, by Saturday morning standards, it's not bad. There's a flaw, but we'll, we'll get to that later. <laughs> Back from commercial, Jabber is trying to sniff out the trail to no avail. But hey, found a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Yeah. That I think Clamhead's going to eat. <laughs> That's going to be the saltiest peanut butter and jelly sandwich ever. Well, you know, I don't think you can get any saltier in there. Shelly's there. Jabber slams into the hiding place of a clam, who does eventually give Jabber the directions to the base. That's a smart clam. Yeah, he doesn't clam up. <laughs> but when they get there, they're astounded and honestly and relatably intimidated by the sheer number of guard sharks. Understandable. So Clamhead deploys his inflatable female shark decoy. You know, the one he always has with him. The... Wait. <laughs> one that looks like a female version of Jabber. Yeah, Clamhead is Jabber's best friend of the band, echoing the whole Scooby Shaggy dynamic. But not as well. And he's got this inflatable female shark that bears more than a passing resemblance to Jabberjaw. Do we even want to know? Clamhead's into some stuff, man. Good God almighty, this raises so many questions. Let's just move on. Zoinks, lucky for you, I'm a dog lover. Sorry. <laughs> At least the decoy works. Including on Jabber. Yeah, fortunately, they're able to remind Jabber that it's a decoy and get him to come back. So, in they go, and they find the ambassador, and Jabber is lowered via a fishing rod-like thing to free the ambassador. I just actually thought of a reasonable defense for Clamhead to have that. It's to get Jabber off of Shelly. <laughs> Fair. 
which, yipes. Does this mean Jabber's relationship with Shelly is the equivalent of a dog and someone's, you know, I'm going to just stop. The more we think about this, the worse it's going to get. Fair. Anyways, back to what's going on in the episode. Jabber successfully grabs the dome that the ambassador is under and uses it to trap the guards. But in her excitement, Bubbles slips off the catwalk and Jabber desperately dives to catch her, sliding into the alarm. Oh, that's a weird-looking alarm. Also, why is that dome not sealed down? I know! Now being pursued, Shelly blames Jabber because of course she does. Yeah, it's everyone's fault except for hers. Everything is. Well, it's Everything's Jabber's yeah. fault, even if yeah. Bubbles the one who slipped. Yep. Always Jabber, 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 Jabber. Poor Jabber. She's just jealous that he's a better character than her. And that's sad. (laughs) Finding some aqua cars, Shelly and Biff each pick separate directions. And with the latter home free with the ambassador, Biff realizes that he lost the others. So Bubbles, who's with him and the ambassador, tries to go into reverse and jams the gears. Is Jabber going to get blamed for this, too? (laughs) Probably. Why did Biff let her drive? Because this gets even worse because he's like, oh, the gears, I don't want to look. And Bubbles is like, oh, the gears are fine. Rips the freaking, like, lever right out. See, they're still going. Meanwhile, Shelly's idea to get them out of being chased tunnel their way through the ground. Can I mention one thing? Okay. This ambassador has the patience of a freaking saint. To be sure. Because, I mean, if I was in that and I saw what Bubbles did, I would have lost my stuff. (laughs) Your lid would have flipped several times. Yes. And I'm still trying to figure out how this aqua car is supposed to tunnel. (sighs) Cartoon logic. Yeah. What she did not plan for is not being able to see where she was going and emerging right in Commander Shark's lair. In front of him, no less. I guess if you're going to make an entrance. The commander's not phased at the ambassador getting away, since the entire World Council is meeting in Marine Springs. And Shelly and Clamhead will help capture them once he turns them into sharks. Well, if that was the case, why'd he bother with the ambassador in the first place? Don't know. Maybe it was a test run. Jabber's attempts at reassuring his pals are no good, and his infatuation with Shark Shelly is even worse for her. I these designs. Yeah. Shelly and Clamhead as freaking sharks are the, the somebody had to design those, is all I have to say. So they're brought to training at an obstacle course, and Shelly gets another idea. They bluff having issues with the training, so they get sent to the front of the line. And once going through the course, they spring into action to overtake the tube the sharks have to swim through, and Shelly runs on her fins to escape that way? While they're all in the tube? That, how? How? What? What purpose? Even the crickets won't do for this one, folks. Uh, no, but I think I found my screenshot for the thumbnail, and it's, believe it or not, it's not the tube, it's just seeing Jabber with 
the other two as sharks, finding a she's got a good screenshot of that. So the other sharks pursue. Shelly trips on some supplies and they bounce over the energy fence and they're free. And she's taking credit for this. Sometimes you just gotta take what you can get. I, yeah. I will say that there is at least one gag because seemingly Jabber's head is out the top of the tube and Shelly's legs are in the bottom. And at one point it's said that Jabber's supposed to be steering, but but the sharks are attacking, so Jabber ducks under. And then Clamhead's like, Jabber, watch your steering. And Jabber's like, I can't. There's sharks out there. <laughs> Which I'm like, okay, that's actually kind of funny. So the trio reunite with the other Neptunes and the Ambassador. They get them up to speed, and it's decided the now sharky trio can make it there faster. Also, they, they, they were willing to believe the whole Clamhead and Shelly are sharks things pretty easily, I will admit. They just kind of accept that. <laughs> so as they sneak through a Marine Springs golf course, they run into one of the series' reoccurring antagonists, Shark Ejectors. <laughs> to which Shelly's like, where are the shark ejectors chasing me? Don't answer that. Jabber leads them to a stable for robotic jet horses, and they ride to the World Council Convention Center. Yes, it's really called that. It's what the sign says atop the door. Indeed it does. Unfortunately, being sharks makes it to where, well, they're not willing to listen to them. Somehow, Shelly and Clamhead convince the council president that they're not sharks by applying makeup and flexing muscles. Unfortunately, it gets ruined when he asks Jabberjaw, is like, and what about you? And Jabberjaw's, oh, me? I'm just a great white shark. That's what I thought. Yep. So the president calls for the shark ejectors, and now it's just up to the Neptunes themselves to solve the whole episode's problem. Which I'm, I'm going to throw out here for a second, that uh, this already shows the biggest problem with Commander Shark's plan. Yes, you've made intelligent shark people, but they still have their own minds and can do whatever the heck they want, and they don't have to follow your instructions, despite the fact that you think they should. Basically. Also, man, those are some horrible-looking sharks. <laughs> Sneaking in the seaweed, they approach Commander Shark's lair to discover the assault has already begun, and... They quickly reverse the transformation on Shelly and Clamhead. Perhaps too quickly. Yeah, like Biff just conveniently knows how to fix this, seemingly. Maybe it just had a reverse button. Hmm. It literally just said reverse. <laughs> now, Biff plans to use the shark's training equipment against them. How? By scooping every single one of them into the biggest net they can find which only works for a brief moment until we get the chase sequence and the requisite cheap pop song. And a lot of not-so-great gags, and they eventually trap everyone in a cave with some rocks that fall really fast for being underwater. Yeah. So with the pirates caught, the band performs at the convention center for reasons, and Jabber gets himself ejected again. No respect. Yeah, and it's in exactly the gag that you probably expect, where it's like, oh, you're the two that were turned into sharks. Why weren't you turned back? Well, I told you, I'm a great white shark. Eject. 
Honestly, did we just pick the two worst episodes of the bunch? Or is this indicative of the series as a whole? Eh, I, I did watch a couple other episodes, and I'm going to say it's it's indicative of the show as a whole. Because really, this show does not have the script writing to do anything good with this premise. No, and it's really kind of frustrating because the premise, the whole underwater world premise, actually is kind of neat. But it's not really done well, or done much with it at all, to be honest. Perhaps 1976 was, in fact, where the teenage mystery-slash-adventure format was reaching the point of no return. Because between this and the even more awkwardly-paced Clue Club, Hanna-Barbera's writers had run these character archetypes into the ground. And it would only keep getting worse. Yeah. Like I said, I'll say that I do like the concept of the world, even if it yeah, like I said, they don't do enough with it. I like the designs of the Neptunes. I think they look less Scooby-Doo-ish than most of the most of these shows. And the budget looks like it was higher in this show compared to like the, some of the other clones, like like Speed Buggy and whatnot. Speed Buggy looks kind of rough, but God, I found it to be a far more enjoyable show. I think Jabberjaw's biggest problem is Jabber himself. I think there's a reason he's o- he's the only character people tend to remember from this show. They gave him a big personality compared to the rest of the cast and throw him into the spotlight literally every chance they get he kind of overshadows everyone and clamhead kind of gets the worst of that he, he's supposed to be the resident shaggy but he really doesn't feel like he, he just kind of feels like he's there shaggy and scooby have like this kind of duo relationship you can't have one without the other but clamhead feels like he's just there to point more attention to jabberjaw like look what jabberjaw can do wowie wow 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 doesn't help that Jabber himself kind of teeters between being amusing and obnoxious. But to the subject of the decline of this format, it just becomes even more of a miracle that Captain Caveman turned out not only to be watchable, but even enjoyable, if this is what preceded it. Yeah, I definitely like Captain Caveman better than this one. Despite running for two seasons, ABC never renewed Jabberjaw for more episodes which was a frequent occurrence with a lot of Hanna-Barbera cartoons of the era. Yeah, the only one I can think of off the top of my head that actually got more episodes was Scooby, and I think Laugh Olympics actually got a second season of episodes. That is correct. But Jabberjaw popped up all kinds of places around the time of this original run, frequently putting in guest appearances in the aforementioned Laugh Olympics, and being partnered with, of all characters, Buford in Yogi's Space Race. Yeah, and I think it says something that, you know, it, all of Jabber's appearances after this show, with the exception of that that one Groovies short they did on Cartoon Network and Boomerang, which was really awesome, are usually him without the Neptunes. Kind of proves my point about his character that I mentioned yeah. earlier. Um, because Jab- you rarely see Scooby without Shaggy. You always see Jabber without the Neptunes. And to that end... There would also be a live-action special done with the Ice Capades to celebrate Fred Flintstone's ostensible birthday, where costumed theme park character versions of many Hanna-Barbera characters would be present, with a Don Messick-voiced Jabberjaw playing a prominent role. Which was weird. Why did that happen? Coincidentally, that special also went hard on promoting the then-new Saturday morning series The Skatebirds which was the other major time Frank Welker put his curly voice to use. That's a bridge we're not looking forward to crossing. 
<laughs> or put another way. Yeah, that's also one of the two times that uh, Scatman Crothers played a character named Scat Cat. The other one being the Aristocats. There would also be the requisite merchandise for Jabberjaw, including coloring books and a spot on an inflatable kiddie pool with other Hanna-Barbera characters like the Flintstones and Yogi Bear, which my parents bought for myself and my sister when we were toddlers. Whoa. A little later in the 80s, Jabber would cameo on Yogi's Treasure Hunt. In fact, he's one of the very few mid to late 70s characters in Hanna-Barbera's library to do so. Which, in retrospect, it's kind of weird they didn't just put the Neptunes in, like, Laugh Olympics whenever they realized they couldn't use the Josie and the Pussycats characters. True. I, I guess they didn't want to explain the time travel thing, because seemingly the only characters that would have any time travel issues are always guest characters for some reason, i.e. Fred and Barney. And, of course, Jabberjaw's own show would resurface in the expected places for a 70s Hanna-Barbera show. On the USA Cartoon Express in the 80s, which is where I first saw it. On the Cartoon Network in the 90s, and on Boomerang in the 2000s. Well, at least we got that cool uh, aforementioned Groovies animation where they did like a ska version of Jabberjaw, and it was actually kind of cool. Yeah, Jabberjaw remains a cult favorite with Hanna-Barbera fans, and kids who never grew up with his original cartoon likely know him from that Groovy short, or from his guest spot in Scooby-Doo Mysteries Incorporated, and their famous Fever Dream episode where he teams up with Scoob and other teen mystery sidekicks. The third place they know him from? The fact that he is now a she, one of several characters whose genders have been switched in the reimagining via C.H. Greenblatt's Jellystone. I feel bad, but I, I like that version of Jabber better. <laughs> As it turns out, this was not the first time Jabberjaw was intended to be reimagined as a female character. No, that was originally going to happen in Scoob. Yep, in the 2020 movie, Scoob, to be precise, she was scheduled to be one of several extended Hanna-Barbera cameos and was allegedly supposed to be voiced by Lizzo. That would have been interesting. But her appearance was limited to just a brief and silent moment at the end credits. The same as what Adam Ant and the Great Grape Ape received. Yeah. Well, it's probably for the better that movie's not great. Yeah, more on that in a future episode. But if you think that's wild, according to James Gunn, during the early 2000s, in the wake of his success with the live-action CGI hybrid Scooby-Doo movies with Matthew Lillard, Sarah Michelle Gellar, and the rest... A similar revival for Jabberjaw was pitched to him, but he ultimately turned it down. Probably for the better. I don't even want to imagine what that would have looked like in live action, especially in the two th early 2000s. So this means Jabberjaw's lone feature film part is one of hundreds upon hundreds of extras in the glorified Where's Waldo puzzle that is the basketball game sequence in the second Space Jam movie. No respect. No respect at all. And you know what else is indicative of no respect? Huh. There's no good shark-themed cereal. Oh. They need, to, they need to make a Shark Week cereal. Yeah. But, but before we go to restock the breakfast cereal, we just want to say thank you to everyone for helping us get past 3,000 downloads now. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, we, we appreciate each and every listen on on your favorite podcatcher or on YouTube, where these episodes debut a little later. 
So, hey, make sure to leave a rating or like or comment or subscribe or get in touch with us on social media. We're on Instagram now. Woo! We everywhere. Or at least close to it. We being social. (laughs) So we will see you in two weeks for more of our Blockbuster Movie Month. And where we're going, we won't need roads. Great Scott! Good night, everybody. See ya! The Penny and James can sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast! The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.